Having said all that, if you have a Bible and you'd like to, turn to uh, Genesis chapter 29. Uh, We're entering back into the uh, soap opera that is the life of Jacob uh, and his now four wives that uh, that he has. Uh, When I was in high school or in college, uh, back in the late 70s, I got hooked on General Hospital. Anybody a soap opera person from back in the 70s? Okay. Bob Colette, who's in my Wednesday morning Bible study, he and I are the only two guys that watch General Hospital. I don't know what happened to Luke and Laura. They might still be on the show. They could be grandparents on the show for all I know. But there's something about a soap opera that's really just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Wrong. <laughs> there, there, there's something just not right about the soap, soap operas. You know, about the time that that was going on, Dallas started on in the evenings, you know, with Who Shot JR and all that. And that was kind of the first evening soap opera. And I know we had to have some Dallas fans. Come on, tell the truth. Okay, we got a handful of Dallas fans. And, uh, the, you know, those people, they're just, you know, there's just something wrong with them. And, and it's, it's intriguing, but it's almost like, you know, you're stopping to look at a car accident. You shouldn't do that. There's, there's just something not right about the, the mess that's created in their lives. And I want to remind you before we read this passage of Scripture that that's, that's kind of where we find ourselves. This section of Scripture really doesn't have a whole lot of, of people with a bunch of character. Not a whole bunch of people that you would, you would read this story and point your kids to and say, go be like Jacob or go, go be like Lear. Go be like, go be like Rachel. Uh, let me remind you kind of when we last left our hero last Sunday, although Jacob's not much of a hero, you know, he was head over heels in love with Rachel. He was smitten with Rachel. He could, he could see nothing else. You remember he works seven years to earn her as his bride and, and the Bible tells us that it seemed but a few days because he was so desperately in love with her. And then his, his, his uncle Laban pulls a fast one on him. His father-in-law to be does a switcheroo. And he ends up marrying the older sister Lee instead of Rachel. But then he works another seven years for the right to be married to Rachel. I mean, he's so in love with this young woman. And yet the whole thing is sorted because of this father-in-law and how he just kind of wrecks the whole deal before it ever gets started. So, uh, so Jacob, and, uh, and Leah go off on their honeymoon, wherever you went on a honeymoon in, in those days, and they spend a week together. Now, can you imagine that honeymoon? Two people who don't want to be together. Jacob's in love with Rachel. All he can think about when he looks at Leah is Rachel. And Leah's been put there by her dad because her dad's trying to work out a business deal. She doesn't really particularly care for this guy a whole lot. She doesn't necessarily, you know, spend a whole lot of time with him because he's been with Rachel. That had to just be the best honeymoon in the history of the world. I mean, they had to be great. Uh, honeymoons are awkward enough as it is, but you're with somebody that you're in love with, and these two didn't love each other. So they come back after a week, and what does Jacob do? First thing he marries, Rachel. So now Leah's kind of off on the side. I'm telling you, this is a sordid affair. Now he has two wives, only one of which he loves. He has two servant girls who are going to become wives through what we're going to read today, which is a real mess, and a father-in-law who's, who's a bum to whom he's indentured himself as a servant now for another seven years. All of this because Jacob lied and cheated his way into his birthright. Instead of trusting God, instead of saying, you know what, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but but I'll trust you and I'll follow you and I'll allow you to take care of the details, Jacob takes it upon himself to cheat his brother, to lie to his father, and he has to run for his life. And he finds himself in this predicament because of himself. So the question this morning is, as we kind of continue on, is, okay, Jacob, how's family life working out? How's all this going with now you and the, these four women under your, your tent, so to speak? Well, if you thought it was bad before, it, it's only going to get worse. Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to begin at verse 31, and we're going to read about 
uh, we're going to read through verse 24 of the next chapter. So this is a fairly long passage, but it is, it's chalked full of all kinds of, of wonderful tidbits of information, which we will come back to. So uh, hang in there with me and, and listen, because this, this is a great passage of Scripture, uh, not for all the right reasons. <laughs> when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, she called his name Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she had bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. He said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my sister Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again. And bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestling I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as his wife. This is just getting better as we go along. Then Leah's servant Zilpha bore Jacob a son. Surprise, surprise. And I'm putting a couple of my words in there. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpha bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, who's now probably a 13, 14-year-old kid, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away also my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, Then... He may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob, surprise, a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again. And she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my approach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as I pray out loud and as as we corporately uh, pray silently, uh, the desire of our hearts is to know your word. 
to understand how to apply it to our lives. Father, this is not just a, an intriguing story filled with interesting characters, but it is a, is a picture into the window of the human soul, to the human condition. And therefore, Father, we're not just looking at Jacob and Leah and Rachel and a couple of servant girls. We're looking at ourselves. And Father, I pray that your spirit would give us the insight to see the scriptures in this way, to understand that this is not just a story that might have a fable, that might have some kind of wise saying at the end, but rather it is the living and breathing word of God given to his people in order that we might be instructed, that we might repent of our sin, that we might turn from our folly and embrace your grace and mercy. It's given to us so that the Holy Spirit may take it and use it as a tool to to mold and to shape us into the image of Jesus. Father, every person in this room needs to know your truth, not my words, not my intentions, but what you want to say to your people this morning. As Jesus' disciples said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord Jesus, we need that word this morning. It is that word for which we pray. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to your people gathered here. We pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to offer a very quick general observation about this text and about this family, uh, and then I'm going to uh, get into the specific issue of the morning that I, that I want to cover. My general observation is nothing really startling or earth-shattering. Uh, you're probably already way ahead of me, uh, because my, my, my observation is that nobody in this family is very happy. <laughs> that doesn't come as a surprise to you. You heard the words if you, if you listened uh, as we read. Leah despises her sister uh, because she has all of Jacob's attention. Now, I'm not sure what Leah expected Jacob to do, she was around for those seven years while Jacob was working. Uh, she saw that Jacob was head over heels in love with her sister. She knew that her father rigged this whole deal in a very deceptive manner. And yet, because she is a wife and because she is in a, in a marriage relationship with this man, uh, she finds herself falling in love with him. She finds herself having affections for him that are not returned. And they're not returned for one very specific reason in the mind of Leah. It's because her sister has ruined her life. And so we find Leah a very bitter and angry person who's despising her sister for having or for, for being the center of Jacob's affections. On the other side of the coin, you have Rachel. Rachel's furious with Leah because she seems to be horning in on their relationship. Rachel was in love with Jacob. They had, they had taken long walks together over those seven years. They had dreamed together about what their family would look like. Jacob probably wrote sappy poetry for her and maybe even sang love songs to her. Jacob had, had courted her and, and, and she had been everything to him and she in turn had fallen in love with him and now her sister is also in this marriage this is an absolute mess and rachel is furious for her sister being involved but she's also extraordinarily upset because she has a longing and a desire to have children and she cannot bear any children and so here's leah on the one hand uh, filled with animosity towards Rachel. Here's Rachel, on the other hand, filled with, with angst towards her sister. And guess who's right smack dab in the middle? Good old Mr. Jacob. Here he finds himself between two feuding women, bartering, as we're going to see in a moment, for sexual favors, using him as the person that they're going to, to argue between. 
Uh, the names of the sons that are given, we'll get into this in a few minutes. Each of these names, you know, you hear the names of the tribes of Israel, Reuben and Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are wonderful, beautiful names. Every one of those names was given by either Leah or Rachel as a jab and an attack to the other one. And I'll explain that to you in just a few minutes. Each of those names is an insult. How would you like that if your parents said, you know, little Johnny, I gave you that name because I was really trying to insult your Aunt Susie. And that's what you, every time Aunt Susie sees you, she gets angry because of your name. Isn't that great? That's what's going on here. And then we have these two servant girls. Wrong place, wrong time. God's providence, it's all going to work out. They didn't ask to be married to Jacob. That wasn't their desire. Maybe they had dreams. Maybe they had hopes. And here they are now being used by pawns of these two feuding sisters. And I just kind of have this picture that Laban's kind of standing off in the corner and he's smirking at this whole situation. It is an absolute mess. That's my general observation. You knew that already. I didn't need to tell you, but I wanted to to set the table for my specific issue, which is the issue of idolatry. That's what I want to talk about this morning. The issue of idolatry. Idolatry is putting our deepest affections on something other than God. Idolatry is putting my deepest affections, my deepest loyalty, my deepest love, my deepest passion on something other than God. We're going to look at this passage at Leah's idols and we're going to look at Rachel's idols. But as we do so, as I prayed in the beginning of the sermon, I want you to be thinking about any idols that may exist in your life. What are things that that you have an affection for that battle with your affection for Jesus? What is it that you say, you know, sometimes that wins out. Sometimes I'm more interested in blank than I am in honoring and loving Christ the way I should. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody. Maybe it's prestige. There could be a lot of different things, but this isn't going to matter. What we're going to do for the next 25 to 30 minutes isn't going to matter unless it applies to our lives. So the application of this text is not, boy, I'm glad I wasn't in that family. (laughs) The application of this text is, are there any idols in my own life? Let's look at Leah's idols for just a moment. Chapter 29, and I'm not going to put any more verses on the screen, but you can follow along in the, in the, in the little uh, passage there in the, in the Seasons Weekly. Uh, but Leah's idol in verses 29, or chapter 29, verses 31 through 35, and I'm just going to skim back over it. Uh, the Lord uh, saw that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. Uh, She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and called his name Levi. And uh, again, she conceived and bore a son, the fourth son, and called his name Judah. God was gracious to Leah. God knew that Jacob did not love her the same way he loved Rachel. The word hated there doesn't mean that, that Jacob literally hated uh, Leah, it means that he had a deep love for Rachel and, and, and Leah was excluded from that. And God was gracious. And he opened her womb and he allowed her to conceive and to bear children. This was an enormous blessing for Leah. How does she respond to God's grace? Well, I'm going to give you two responses that she have, has neither of them are very good. The first one is this. She sees her sons, these children being born to her, as a pathway into her husband's affections. Did you hear her words that she spoke when the child was born? Now, because I've given him a son, and she repeats it again after another one child is born, now my husband will love me. Where's her focus? Her focus isn't directed heavenward. I'm going to thank God for, for allowing me to have children. That's one of the deepest desires of my heart, and God has blessed me. She doesn't do that at all. She simply says, I've got a child. Now I can make an emotional connection with my husband. 
She doesn't praise God. She doesn't worship him. Instead, she idolized something which she will never possess. Now, I want to stop for just a second and be careful here because the love of a husband is a good thing. Gentlemen, we need to, those of us who are married, we need to be continually asking ourselves, how can we love our wives better? We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, putting it in the context of the New Testament. How are we doing at that? There's nothing wrong with Leah's desire that her husband would care for her, would love her, would be in a relationship with her. And that's a good warning for us today. But she has so made it the center of her life that there's room for nothing else. I'm going to give you a little, a little insight here that I think is important for us to remember as we go through this passage. And quite frankly, just to remember in general, an idol typically is not an evil thing. An idol typically is a very good thing taken out of proportion. Most of us, when, when we look at the sin in our lives, we're not, we're not tempted to run out and to, to murder somebody and to rob a bank. We're not tempted to go out and rape and pillage and steal and do, do awful things. We typically are tempted when we allow something that's good to take an, an inordinate space in our lives that moves God out of the center of our hearts. And that's what Leah has done. Yes, it's good for your husband to love you, but to make that the sole purpose of your life to the exception of everything else so that it blinds you in your relationship with God is an unhealthy thing. And so she gives an inappropriate importance to her children as a way to gain something that she wants, to gain her idol, this love of her husband. But the second thing she does is she sees these sons as an opportunity to gloat over her sister. I said that these names mean something. And, uh, and I'm going to just give you a couple. We could, we could go through all of them, but I'm not going to take the time. But, but in gloating over her sister, her, the first son, whose name is Reuben. And Reuben, technically, if you just boil his name down to his most simplest form, simply means this. Look, a son. Okay? So Leah knows that Rachel can't have kids. I can guarantee you that Rachel and Jacob are trying to have kids, and it's not working. And it, lo and behold, Leah is fertile. She conceives, bears a son, and then she walks around the camp. Oh, Rachel, have you seen little Reuben? Rachel, look, a son. I think that made Rachel feel, oh, isn't that so special for you? You know that just made her blood boil. And Leah uses even the name of her son. The second uh, son, whose name is Simeon, technically that means the Lord has heard. As if Leah is saying to Rachel, Rachel, are you praying for a child? I mean, I prayed for a child, and look, the Lord heard. Maybe there's something wrong with your spiritual walk. Have you not been having your devotions? Have you not, you know, have you not been having your quiet time? Did you not go to church last week? Maybe you didn't put enough money in the offering? I mean, all these different kinds of little jabs simply in a name. And Leah, to her shame, is using even the names of her children to show that she has no compassion for Jacob and Rachel and their predicament. She's only filled with bitterness and with angst. I went to Proverbs 30 this week to, to uh, remember uh, uh, this passage, which correlates with this story. In a Proverbs chapter 30, verse 21 and following, just three verses, I'm going to read them for you. It says this, under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot hold up. In other words, here, here are four situations that if you see it, get away from it as far as you can. It, this is only going to be bad. You, you want to avoid this like the plague. What are these four things? Number one, a slave who becomes a king. Number two, a fool when he is filled with food. Just like the plague. What are these four things? Number two, a fool when he is filled with food. Number three, an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Leah was an unloved woman 
who had a husband, and the earth trembled beneath her feet. She does not bless God's name. She does not thank him. She simply uses these children as a sledgehammer with which to, to try and beat her sister into submission. That's Leah's idol. That's the reality of this story. But then there's Rachel. Rachel also has an idol. It's different because uh, she has the love of her husband, so that isn't her idol. Where's, where's Rachel's problem? Look at the first three verses of chapter uh, 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. God has been gracious to Rachel. God has given Rachel a husband who adores her. God has given Rachel a husband who cares for her every need. I I can promise you, even though the scriptures don't say it, because of the love that the scriptures tell us that Jacob had for Rachel, that I'm sure he sat next to her and held her hand and cried with her when she knew that she wasn't going to have a child. He was the kind of husband that a lot of us ought to be. In fact, Jacob, I think in some ways, really kind of makes me look bad as a husband in the way he adores Rachel. God had been gracious to Rachel by giving her such a man. He worked 14 years in order to marry her. I called Cindy's mom on the phone one afternoon and said, hey, I'm going to propose to your daughter. Would that be okay? I mean, I didn't really go that far to, to make that happen. Her dad had passed away, so it was her mom who I called. You know, Cindy's got a, or Katie's got a guy she's kind of interested in now. I think I might be onto something with this passage. You know, if he calls me someday and says, you know, I think I'd, I'd like your daughter's hand in marriage, I think I might say something along the lines of, well, why don't you stop by the house and let's work out a deal? You know, start by cutting my grass. Let's start there. And, you know, the basement's kind of messy. Why don't you clean up the basement and, and you know, get, go out and get a job and give me about 30% of what you're making. You know, I think, dads, I could, I could be onto something here. This, this, this could, Nate said my moneymaker was crying. Maybe my moneymaker is, is getting a guy to, to work for my daughter. I'm not, I'm not sure. But, but this guy, you know, he adores her. That's a blessing from God. How does she respond? Well, if Leah's idol was Jacob's love, Rachel's idol was bearing children. Did you hear her statement to her husband? Give me children or I'll die. Do you hear the emotional weight of that statement? That's not a passing comment. That's not, honey, I'm a little bit frustrated. I hope this works out. That is, I am racked with pain and agony emotionally. And if something doesn't change, I don't know if I can go on. Now, again, just like wanting a husband's love or wanting a wife's love is a good thing. Desiring to have children is a great thing. I, I don't, I'm not knocking that at all. We have three kids and they're, they're a great joy in our lives and Christians should have, have children. God said, go into the world and be fruitful and multiply. Having kids is a great thing. But when it becomes your idol, when it becomes your obsession and it crowds out your relationship with God. It robs you of your joy, just as it robbed Rachel of her joy. And it led her to two very specific acts of immorality. Notice what she says to Jacob. She says, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her, have relationship with her so that she will conceive and bear a child. She leads her husband and this innocent young girl into adultery, into sexual immorality. Now, Jacob should have said no. 
Jacob should have gone, wait a minute, I remember something about, about Grandpa Abraham. And that did not go well for him. I'm not, go, I'm not going to walk down that same road. Jacob is culpable here too. I'm not letting him off the hook, but it's Rachel who initiates the idea. And her idolatry leads her to another sin, which leads others into sexual immorality. But it doesn't stop there. Listen to verse 14 of chapter 30. In the days of the wheat harvest, when Reuben went out and found, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And then they work out this bartering deal where uh, Leah gets to, to hire Jacob uh, as her servant for that night. And, and, um, and Rachel gets some mandrakes. You say, what's the big deal there? Well, what's happening here is that uh, Rachel is ignoring what Jacob has already said to her. Jacob said to her, and he was heated when he said it, but he spoke the truth. He just do, didn't do it in love. Am I God that I can give you children? Jacob understood that children come from the Lord, that the Lord is sovereign over this. Rachel didn't listen to that. That went in one ear and out the other. And now, instead of turning to God and allowing him to work this out in his time and in his process, she turns to this cultural superstition of the mandrakes. You see, the mandrakes in, in ancient times were a supposed uh, aphrodisiac. They were, they were called the love apple. Uh, mandrakes in Hebrew, literally almost as synonymous as you hear it, as the word love is in Hebrew. So it's the idea that there's, the, there's this, um, uh, this fertility drug that if I can just take this, then I will bear children. And so you see Rachel, by asking for the mandrakes, taking her eyes off of God and his divine providence and trying to rig the deal through a superstitious... Uh, belief that somehow this will work. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm leaving this afternoon on a long vacation. I don't know when I'll be back. Honey, I forgot to tell you this, but yesterday um, I had uh, Hunan shrimp for lunch and I got this uh, fortune cookie thing. Now is a good time for you to explore, take a vacation. So obviously I should go do this, right? No, it's a goofy superstition. You don't build your life around a silly superstition. But Rachel, I'm not going on vacation. Rachel does. She looks at these mandrakes. She says, oh, you know what? I heard somewhere that, that that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a drug that will help me get pregnant. Do you remember? I was thinking about, I said, there's a song about this somewhere, and I couldn't remember for about half of the week, and then it clicked. Love potion number nine. Now, if you're, if you're in high school, you do not remember this. If you're 35 years old, you probably don't remember the song, but I found it. I went on the internet, and I found it. Jerry Lieber wrote this song in 59. The Searchers uh, made it a big hit in 63. It's only four verses long. Bear with me. I'm sorry. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap tooth? She got a pad down at 34th and Vine, selling little bottles of love potion number nine. I told her this is where it really gets personal and sentimental. I told her that I was a flop with chicks. I'd been this way since 1956. She took, she looked at my palm, made a magic sign. She said, what you need is love potion number nine. She bent down and turned around and gave me a wink. She said, I'm going to mix it up right here in the sink. It smelled like turpentine, looked like Indian ink. I held my nose. I closed my eyes. I took a drink. I know you knew this song. Y'all are sitting there like I'm nuts. I knew y'all knew this song. I didn't know if it was day or night. I started kissing everything in sight. But when I kissed a cop down at 34th and Vine, he broke my little bottle of love potion number nine. Oh, gosh. Y'all are going, man, we got to find a new church. <laughs> The end result of, of Rachel's superstition and, and renting out her husband for the night does not, does not make her fertile. She doesn't have a child 
immediately after that. In fact, the one thing that could, what could possibly be the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could be happen is Leah getting pregnant. Well, guess what happens? Leah gets pregnant. And Leah, being the sweet, loving sister that she is, takes this opportunity to use a name to make one more point. And so she calls this son Issachar. Issachar in its most fundamental term means wages, something you earn. So what Leah is saying to Rachel is, look, this business deal worked out great for me. It's super. How, how were your, how, the wages that you paid by giving me your husband, how'd that turn out for you? Oh, you don't have any kids. I'm so sorry. Rachel, by idolizing having children, by ignoring the providence of God, leaves herself broken and frustrated. The practical result of idolatry, friends, whatever we substitute or worship for God, it ultimately becomes our God and consumes us. Our idols are harsh, harsh taskmasters. Leah's refusal to trust God with her longing for Jacob's love wreaked havoc. Rachel's insistence on children did the same, and everybody got hurt. In Galatians chapter 5, I was reading this this morning as I was, as I was thinking through this text. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul, if you study Scripture, you know that that's the, where you read about the fruits of the Spirit. But before talks, Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, he talks about the, the fruits of the flesh, what it, what you're, what it looks like when someone's living with, uh, without God, without any interest in God, without following God, without a relationship with Christ. And he mentions a lot of really bad stuff, sexual immorality and sorcery and, and, uh, and drunkenness and orgies, some really bad stuff. But right smack dab in the middle of this list is where a lot of us live every day, myself included. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Friends, those are the byproducts of idolatry. This is not a victimless crime. When I place something in my heart and give it more affection than the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm opening myself up to a life that's filled with those kinds of circumstances and situations. That's exactly what Rachel and Leah did to their family. Now, real quickly, by the way, what is God doing while all this is happening? He's not uh, necessarily all that active in the story, although he, he's allowing them to have, have children, uh, and they're calling on his name to defend their own agenda. I don't believe the, the praise of God in this passage is at all authentic. I think they, they are saying, okay, I got something, so now God's a good guy, and if I don't get something, he's a bad guy. I believe their, their praise is warped. But God is active beyond just allowing them to have children. He is patiently allowing this pain in this family to go unchecked due to these sisters' lack of faith because he wants to teach them a lesson about his providence. And he's still actively involved in keeping the promise he made to Abraham, a promise of mercy, a promise of grace, and a promise of salvation. You say, where on earth is that? Well, it's in the last verse of chapter 29. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Judah, what, Tom, what on earth does that have to do with God's salvation, with God's promise to Abraham that he would bring grace and mercy to the whole world through one of his offspring. Well, I'm going to read for you just a couple of verses out of Matthew chapter 1. Judah was the father of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, who we all know is the one from whom the Messiah would come. While this soap opera... <laughs> is running its wild course. God is in the business of thinking about your redemption and my redemption. 
and Jacob's redemption and Leah's and Rachel's and their children and their children because God is going to bring about his plan of salvation. Your idolatry and my idolatry does not pigeonhole God. It does not stop him from carrying out his divine will. It simply makes us live through circumstances with which we shouldn't. If we would, but, you know, Jeff talked about, you know, saying to us, trust and obey. Put your faith in Christ and allow that to dictate the steps of your life. That's the practical application for us this morning. We have the same problem with idolatry. I would say even in the church, to a certain extent, marriage can, can be an idol, you know, can be an idol for us. You know, a good Christian gets married. No, Paul said a lot of good Christians stay single because they can give more work to the kingdom of God. But somehow, sometimes the church elevates, I think, marriage beyond perhaps what we should. Now, God created marriage. He created it for a man and a woman. I'm not at all saying it's wrong. But I think sometimes it can become an idol. I think children in the church can become an idol. We're so consumed with our kids. Our identity is so wrapped up in our kids. And I've I've walked this tightrope myself. I love my children dearly. I think there are times when I've made them an idol in my life. I watch Cindy correct kids at Kirkwood High School. You know, they're, they're acting terribly, and she calls them to account, only to have a parent call and chew her out. How dare she say that to their child? Friend, that's making your child an idol. That's not loving them well. That's not serving them well. That's helping lead them down a path of self-destruction. And at times when we put our children on these, uh, up on a, on, a, on a pedestal and we almost worship them, I love my children dearly, but I never want them to replace the spot Jesus has in my heart. Friends, whether our idolatry is money, food, kids, marriage, whatever it might be, there are idols in our lives that make us end up in situations like Rachel and Leah. The question is, do we want God or do we want what God can get us? Those are two radically different things. If I want God, that's worship. That's bowing before him and saying, Lord, whatever you bring, good times, bad times, the struggles, the blessings, the joys, the moments of, of tears and crying and heartache. Father, I, I don't, I, you bring whatever you want. I just want you. That's what we're called to in Christ. Wanting God to just fill my needs leads to spiritual bankruptcy and broken human relationships. The question that Leah and Rachel are living out before our very eyes this morning, what do you want more than God? Let's pray.